Welcome, everybody, to episode 166 of The Metabilis 2, which features myself, Ben. And I am David. And tonight, what are we talking about? We are talking about an assassin of the most deadliest kind. The Dudley A. Simpson. No. The Dudley A. Simpson. <laughs> uh, the Deadly a, Assassin. A, 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 a deadly assassin. A deadly, if you will. the deadliest assassin. Yeah. So this is a major. This is a major story. So I think we're going to try and we're going to, even though we've already talked about it before. I think so. Um, we're going to do maybe do a whole episode on it. Yeah. I guess so as your want, what what did you think of this when you first saw it? I thought it was great. Yeah? I was sad that Sarah had gone, mm-hmm. but this one kind of slammed straight into the, like, action pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all is forgiven, basically. I, di- I like the scroll. Is it it's called a scrawl? At the scroll. beginning? Yeah. yeah. It's just like, ooh, it's like Star Wars. Ray, Doctor Who's going to be like Star Wars now. Well, um, didn't it predate Star Wars, though? This came out in 76, so it was like a whole year before whoa, Star okay. Wars. That's, that's me misremembering myself. Um, I When I saw Star Wars, I was like, yay, Star Wars is going to be like Doctor Who now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was, yeah, I loved it. I mean, the, again, I think, as I, as I said before, it does help for me when I was a kid that um, certainly, you know, famous episode three where the doctor is in the matrix right. um, trying to escape from um, spoiler alert, Chancellor Goff. Mm-hmm. It does help that that is almost exactly a landscape that was the same as my mates, uh, my best friend's back garden, uh, backyard, uh, yeah, <laughs> very big backyard. Really? And uh, yeah, so we play Enders. I mean, usually, and I'm, I've said this before, Usually we play like the British army versus the Japanese Mm -hmm. in that kind of jungle setting. But I think for an entire period of time, I guess it must have been kind of, I don't know, when when we would have been out there. Anyway, we swapped it over to um, Chancellor Goff versus the Doctor. In the Matrix. Hmm. In the Matrix, yeah, with clowns and samurais and weird eggs and trains <laughs> basically uh, everything bob holmes was terrified of, of. exactly exactly <laughs> rotten eggs people with big injectors mm-hmm. syringes um t- uh, uh, machine gun arm tiger moths mm-hmm. ah it's a train get out of the way all that kind of stuff yeah yeah this one was a little weird for me i i it certainly threw me for a loop when it came up because we were on really? we're on gallifrey which uh, which wasn't, I guess, that big of a deal for me because this was, what, we're only a few stories in. How many stories in into the Tom Baker era? We're, what, uh, 13 stories, 14 stories in on the Tom Baker era? So you you hadn't been sort of aware that there even was, like, Gallifrey was an issue. Right. So, and no preconceived notions of it. I thought the Matrix bit was a bit odd, and it was very action-heavy, too. But it was weird kind of action there wasn't a lot of dialogue, so I was just rewatching this over the weekend, and there are long passes where it's just uh, Simpsons score and the ambient noises of the Doctor scrambling around. It's yeah, it's it, great. It's not even him talking to himself very much. No, it's like a it's like a, some kind of art action movie. It's great because mm-hmm. I mean I think a lesser show directed by you know a lesser director would have had, you know, the doctor kind of, you know, mumbling to himself and like explaining what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. But we don't really get that at all. The doctor doesn't go like, oh, now, oh, no, mm-hmm. I've been struck by a dart or something. Right. I've got to, ooh, I've got to do a thing now. Oh, look, it's an airplane. Mm-hmm. What's that airplane up in the sky? Mm-hmm. You know, 
Yeah, Maloney's style of direction is definitely show, not tell. And yeah, e- even though that Holmes probably had exposition in there, I think a lot of it has been cut out or just even not there because it's it's all, especially episode three, it's just all what you see is what you get. It's yeah. it's the reality of the Matrix. And it's it's a very earthly Matrix, which I found interesting if this was, is it Goth's imagination or the Master's imagination? Either one must have spent some time on Earth because it's very Earth-like terrors and horrors. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, but that's not really surprising. Though. I mean, I, I think it would have been a duller Matrix, certainly for me, if it had been, I don't know, like a Star Trek-style alien planet with, like, you know, monsters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I very much liked that it was all kind of sort of, I don't know, not mundane, but sort of, you know, um, it was it's a dream. It's a dream. It was <laughs> like a, it's a, it's 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 very difficult to kind of shoot convincing dreams, but right. it actually worked pretty well as the kind of nightmare that you have that you're being pursued by a a pursuer that you can't shake off <laughs> for both of them. <laughs> I think that's what's great about it, you know, is that is they end up both being pursued by each other. I right. mean, they're stuck in their own nightmares, yeah. in each other's nightmares. Now, I think this is the best realization of The Matrix. We've never, never surpassed yeah. Yeah. it. And uh, I think part of it is we the show gravitates to sound stages and sets, and by throwing it outdoors in a big quarry with uh, different settings, with kind of a jungly, the marsh settings and stuff. Yep. It works so much better because you get the North by Northwest vibe with the plane going and there's just mm, different. Well, that's true. It's very cinemagraphic. Yeah. Uh, and it's well-paced. And like I said earlier, there's not a lot of monologue and stuff. You're witnessing everything from the doctor's perspective and you're seeing what he's seeing, you're experiencing what he's seeing. There's a big creepy spider. He's not freaked out by that, you know, that that right. type of bit, which which I thought was interesting looking back because just one regeneration back, that's how he died with the planet of, oh. planet of spiders, the great one. So I thought that was an interesting huh. choice. I don't know if it's intentional because what else would you have out, right. out there? But I thought that was... Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, you're right. He's very focused in on this battle with Goth and... He gets, you know, he wounds Goth by setting up a, a booby trap with a tripwire and a grenade. So there's this give and take between the hunter and the prey, and that flips around at various times depending on which one of the two time lords has the upper hand. And it is, I mean, it is incredibly brutal. Yeah, you know, the the obviously, you know, the famous end of episode three when Goth is attempting to drown our hero. I mean, right. that's you know, but I mean, that's not a surprise at that point because they basically been slugging at each other for like an entire 25 minutes Mm -hmm. until both of them are kind of at the end of their tether and it is a very you know as i said you know it's a nightmare it's a nightmare that you cannot escape from in fact the only way that either of them would know that they can escape this nightmare is that if they kill the other um it's 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 strong it's strong stuff it's strong stuff i mean i can see why mary whitehouse got her knickers in a twist about it i mean i still don't haven't really forgiven her but um you know it was it's yeah it's pretty pretty brutal pretty brutal stuff mm-hmm. and then if we go look at the very beginning of the story we have the uh kind of the riff on the manchurian candidate and right. it turns into i think holmes falling on his background as being a copper as being a policeman it becomes very police procedural with yeah castle and spandrel george pravda's investigation and 
Gallifrey is not a nice place. They immediately resort to torture. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, that's the other. I mean, this, the brutality is all the way through. I mean, right. it, the, you know, the doctor is tortured. I said, you said pretty much like immediately. They don't really kind of bother to do any other kind of questioning. Mm-hmm. Like the, it's, it's the kind of the assumption is if you're, if you're being interrogated about a crime, they're going to torture you kind of the first thing that they do. Right. Um, and then, of course, you know, when we find actually discover who's behind all this the you know what what has happened to i mean actually to be honest what what kind of freaked me out the most about the deadly assassin when i was a kid is realizing that roger delgado who who, you know again who was like this kind of again completely awesome aspirational you know super (laughs) amazing villain right um had become this through some kind of horrific brutality which you know isn't really fully explained had become this kind of wizard's cackling skeleton right and that i mean that i mean because you hadn't seen you hadn't really been exposed to the master before right Mm -mm. no this is my first outing with the master and so there's you know, as as Bob Holm does, he gives a little backstory that Goth met him on Tursurus and he had run out of his regenerations. Both of those are introduced in this story. And right. Do you know if any big finisher anyone has taken Tursurus and run with it? I know it was set. I do not know. Okay. Because Moffat set Curse of Fatal Death on Tursurus, but I don't indeed don't know if that's officially canon. So it'd be interesting, interesting to see what someone has come up with. How did the master? Uh, become this burnt corpse walking corpse and no longer kind of charming and seductive and you know hypnotizes people and wears elegant suits right and is always calling you know like the doctor you know the kind of he's the the flip side of, of pertwee's doctor mm-hmm. he's now not the flip side of anything he's just a, a just a horrible he's because he's become an actual monster yeah, he's um, the phantom of the opera effectively yeah yeah, exactly. The Phantom of the Opera, um, the Phantom of the Panopticon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So I mean, this. So the brutality just runs all the way through, mm-hmm. and yeah. So you were talking about it being as a police procedural. Yeah, I think the whole bit of investigation where you have the hot and cold with uh, Pravda's character Castellan Spandrel, he almost believes the Doctor. Yeah. He thinks there's something more going on, and he works. You know, he immediately wants more time. Uh, Goth is in this big rush to get the trial and the execution. I think this is Barusa at his best. With yep, um, definitely the best Barusa with Angus McKay. Yeah, really, I think it's a shame what Dix did to the character of Barusa. He's he's good in Invasion of Time, but then just to make him the villain in the Five Doctors, I think is just it. It seemed out of character. Certainly out of character. What you would have. In the deadly assassin. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I think that was you know again one of my my I, at the time I had many beefs with the invasion of time, and I still do. Um, but one of my main beefs was is that Angus McKay didn't come back as Barusa. He's such a perfect character, such a um, a perfect kind of yes minister style bureaucrat, just perfectly perfectly played. Mm-hmm. And, and again, as you're you're right with the five doctors to have him be the villain. It's like, well, why? Right, doesn't make any sense. Ran out of names. <laughs> ran, ran out of ran out of people to be villains. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, it's kind of one of my one of my problems. I mean, I've got again, I've got a lot of problems with the five doctors. I know that's heresy, but I do. 
Um, and that's again one of my problems with it. It's one of yeah. my problems with like with the end of time, bringing back Rasslon just to become the villain. It's it's yeah, why it's... couldn't we think of a new name? Why do we have to? Yeah, couldn't we call him? Fold back in on ourselves. Could couldn't couldn't it be like Mario and Luigi? Couldn't it be Wassilon or something? <laughs> <laughs> it, it'd like be wario and wario it, it, you know it's like on. the uh, life of brian <laughs> yeah there you go you see wassalon yeah. wassalon it's wassalon he's <laughs> rassalon's evil brother mm -hmm. it's just as good um so yeah no it's it's all the performances are pitch perfect really mm -hmm. angus mckay bernard horsefall is amazing eric chitty as edward engen. chitty is yep. fantastic as engen yep. george pravda is amazing as spandrel Yep. It's so good that they've actually, I mean, I guess there's the blip of, um, of Planet of the Daleks, but it's so good that they, I'm assuming this was conscious, they decided to do this consciously, that Bernard Horsfall was also one of the Time Lords in in the War Games. That, mm -hmm. that just works beautifully. Same director. I think this is a director casting uh, from Oh, actors. is it Mahoney? Okay, yeah, I think all right. so, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that works really nicely for kind of fans, I think. And I think, you know, the design of it is so beautiful as well. Um, they've really made, you know, on a BBC budget, they've created, you know, a pretty convincing looking Gallifrey. And, yeah. you know, they've taken some of the cues of when we've seen Gallifrey before in, you know, The Three Doctors and uh, War Games and um, um, Colony in Space. Mm -hmm. they've taken these and you know again when time lords turn up as well like in genesis of the daleks they've taken some of those design elements and they've kind of mixed it in to create and again this is something that always kind of bugs me about doctor who nowadays that all time lords now have to wear these giant collars <laughs> constantly when it's actually it's pretty well established that a they don't wear them constantly because right. they're really impractical that they're ceremonial robes right and we've seen the time lords in previous uh i mean i guess it's, it's the influence of how great the deadly assassin is you know but it's it is irritating to me that this is now what time lords are supposed to look like right i mean you know even down to the most recent and i mean i love the cyber lords but you know they have giant yeah time lord collars mm -hmm. which kind of makes them look like cyber lords and uh, that's all down to fandom really and you know having a lack of imagination in my opinion well it's like you said it's the whole impact that the costume design is uh james atchison and yeah. joan ellicott and then roger murray leach with the set design had this, perfect it had such a huge impact that it it, it just kind of bled on through it and a lot of i think well some of it i think is to blame with the following production team and the budget shortfalls that graham williams had with invasion and time that they would return to gallifrey for the season finale of uh, season 15 and reuse bits of the whole uh you know, the a return of barusa and it was it, it was it seemed to be the show is starting to fold back in on itself at that point just and possibly it's due to running out of money yeah and again i mean i think the problem with evasion of time is that you know gallifrey doesn't look like it doesn't look as good as the gallifrey that we saw in deadly assassin you know just this kind of ghastly green tinge that everything has in the deadly assassin mm -hmm. and as everyone knows green is the color of monsters <laughs> actually i kind of like the tardis of kind of brick tardis um but gallifrey itself is it, you know it looks like a bbc studio is what mm -hmm. it looks like which is what it was um it's a know. lack of real elevation with the panopticon set you have 
the DAS, you have the overlooking thing where the television cameras were and where the assassination, where the doctor was trying to block the assa- or prevent the assassination. So you have deadly assassination. <laughs> <laughs> so you have the different levels on it and whenever you have a set designer and this is what murray leach would often do you'd see the same thing like in the arc in space where you have these different levels and this verticality in it it just classes it up and it makes it seem like you have a bigger budget than you actually do to work with yeah it feels like i mean as much as any doctor who feels like it's got a big budget um, yeah, this feels like it's got a big budget. I mean, even, you know, of, of, when you see it nowadays, you know, it does, as we were talking about last week, you know, there's that brain of Morbius, um, you know, when they're walking around on something that's ostensibly solid, sounds hollow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be great to dub that indifferently. But apart from that, you know, it looks and sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And the outdoor, the OB material is filmic. You know, it's yep. like it's like watching... I don't know, Apocalypse Now or something. You know, it's absolutely superb all the way through. Yeah. And that toggle between the VT of the studio and the film of when they're shooting outside, which usually is in some ways a little bit jarring in Doctor. You can always see the difference between film material and videotape material, or at least material that's lit outdoors versus material that's lit in a studio works perfectly because of course one is a dream and the other is real right or maybe there maybe one is real and the other is a dream who knows mm-hmm. yeah i just want to touch back on murray leach's design because it looks like a million bucks but it's really him doing simple tricks with black curtains effective lighting and a few set walls because the way that Maloney is filming it, often you'll see that there's really nothing beyond it other than just black curtains beyond the green wall that they'd have like at the trial scene or when Barusa is confronting or discussing something with Goth. They have that one panel. It's sort of like the TARDIS set. They have the panel and then they have the, the blow-up picture of the panel and that's it. They're leveraging design creativity and directorial uh, vision to make it uh, go further than what it's actually there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's yeah, in some ways, as you said, it's not so much about money. It's just having some really great people working on the show. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, people like Murray Leach, etc., have gone on to, you know, Hollywood and big movies just shows how great they were working on this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The question I have, or kind of raised retrospectively, is the whole idea of regeneration, and perhaps it's because regeneration is heavy on my mind now after the Timeless Children, but right. none of the, like Goth doesn't try to regenerate, and the guards who get killed, they don't regenerate. So I wonder if regeneration is not all Gallifreyans, or was there something being hooked up to the Matrix itself that caused Goth to expire rather than regenerate? Uh, good question. Um, I'm presumably, fans have already answered this question for mm-hmm. us at some point. Okay, well, I don't know. Just, I mean, I, right. I mean, I think, I think, really, I mean, obviously, I mean, what one could say, okay, maybe you know, the guards are not Time Lords, and that Time Lord is something that you 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 learn how to be. It's not something that you're born into. Mm-hmm. Certainly, in the Deadly Assassin and. I think in some ways I've always really understood that the reason why Goth doesn't regenerate is because he's basically been sucked dry by the master and that this is such a horrific experience for him in terms of being in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he's kind of pleading not to be sent back in again. You know, it kind of sets up that this is a 
very draining experience. Mm-hmm. So that's my own explanation for why mm-hmm. he doesn't regenerate to someone more interesting. Right. I think the master burns him up as he's trying to trap the doctor in the Matrix yeah. from escaping. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. The master is, um, he just uses this person in the kind of most, you know, in a kind of Sutecky sort of way. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's very, you know, it's, this is, um, I think Scarman and Goth are kind of, you know, vessels of their master. Yeah, they really don't have anything mm-hmm. left in their lives other than serving the person who they have mistakenly chosen to serve. And that person just uses them up and throws them away, which is, again, mm-hmm. part of the horror of all this. Uh-huh. Well, since you mentioned Pyramids of Mars, it was uh, nice to see Ibrahim Namin back in, Peter Mayock, who is playing the guard Solus, who's the one that oh. uh, Spandrel shot, who's under control of the master. You have the advantage of me, my friend. Oh. I didn't realize that he was back. Yeah. So I think this is the, that uh, as uh, Namin and uh, Solus. Those are his only two roles, I believe, in oh, Doctor excellent. Who. So. Oh, very cool. Very good. Two, two good stories. Because this, I mean, this show, this caused a ruckus at the time in fandom. I mean, everyone hated, as far as one reads, everyone hated the Deadly Assassin because the Time Lords had been presented as this kind of Arthur C. Clarke style sort of, you know, super beings mm-hmm. who were benevolently, rather superciliously, but certainly benevolently looking after the universe or watching the universe in a comic book super being kind of way. And Holmes just blows all that out of the water. And, and, you know, I think as he did with the Sunmakers, used the show as a as a vessel for his own satirical interests as much as his own kind of storytelling interests. And the Time mm-hmm. Lords, they become something a lot more interesting, which is, to me, I mean, both a satire on the BBC, uh, a satire on the police service. You know, one can certainly imagine police constable Holmes or whatever he was, you know, being very frustrated with the detectives in the police station or wherever, wherever the hell he worked. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, in a wider sense, the kind of satire on Oxford and Cambridge and you right. know, those kind of institutions that Holmes didn't really have any direct experience of, but certainly through working, as I'm sure he had to do on numerous occasions, working with the Oxbridge types who were running the BBC, disliked those kind of people intensely. Hmm. Yeah, that's what it most reminds me of is academia and the biting and the backstabbing of academics when there's there's really no stakes. They're really not doing anything, much like the people of Gallifrey, or the Time Lords. They don't really do anything. They're paper pushers. Right, right. <laughs> and so the stakes are all internalized. It becomes its... Uh, the panopticon's a very good metaphor because it's all looking inwards. They're all looking at each else. They're all watching each other. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to see this more as a satire on the BBC actually than than mm. than an, an Oxford and Cambridge. And the reason I say that is actually the reason why the reason I just gave is that is that right. is that I mean I think and again I'm making I don't know a huge amount about. Robert Holmes's life, apart from the fact he wrote for Doctor Who and he was in the police. I mean, I think the satire on academia implies that Holmes had direct experience of that kind of high-level university life. I don't think he Mm -hmm. did. But what he did have experience of is people who were products of that system. So people who were, you know, were actually even worse than academics. Not only 
were they kind of backstabby and bitchy and infighty, but they weren't even really doing any useful work either. They weren't, you know, they weren't uh, adding to the sum of human knowledge in any kind of way. They were just, you know, running the BBC and appeared not to have any actual job to do apart from making Bob Holmes's job harder. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's a good point because you can look at someone like Douglas Adams and especially like Shada, which is more an academic uh, bent than yeah, because I mean, a, I deadly mean, assassin. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the reason why Adams set it in Cambridge because he went to Cambridge, so you know, he right. has a good idea of what that's actually like. When it seems to me that Bob Holmes, who I'm sorry, I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page, you know, was in the army, um, you know, he fought in Burma, he joined the police force. He went to Hendon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he'd never seen the inside of a university. And again, any kind of satire on, on, on academe that he was producing was one that was at second, was second hand. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, again, what he's really satirizing is, is the high ups at the BBC um, mm-hmm. who just kind of, you know, swan around telling you what to do without actually knowing anything about it. Well, Bob Holmes definitely wrote about what he knows, yeah, and it, always. it's definitely a man's world in Bob Holmes' uh, vision. There's no women. No women, and I think the only woman is uh, a, a voice on the computer screen. Yeah, so. they're just computers. And actually, hang on, I mean, now I'm, now I'm on Bob Holmes' Wikipedia page. As I said, I referenced my friends, my best friend and I playing, you know, the Doctor versus Goth in The Jungles of the Matrix, the other game that we played was the British Army versus the Japanese Army in Burma. Right. And now I've just found out that Bob Holmes fought in Burma. So, you know, this, I think the major, again, he's writing about what he knows. Right. And he had a, some experience of, you know, at a very, very young age, the age of 18, of fighting in a jungle. Yeah. In fact, it says here he had a commission. It was the youngest commission officer in the entire British Army huh. um, during the Second World War. Yeah. Well, it definitely comes across as. These are Bob Holmes horrors from what is an alligator or crocodile is the first uh, monster that we see. There are no monsters in this other than Corpse Master. Yeah, yeah. And the monster is the fearful dream in which you're stuck and you can never escape from, you know. And and Mm -hmm. again, as a a metaphor for jungle warfare, I mean, that's exactly what one must imagine that that is like. You know, you're stuck Mm -hmm. in this terrible place and there's no way out. Yeah. Yeah. Except through death. Except through death. The only way to escape is is by killing someone else. Which is the metaphor of the jungle warfare. Exactly. Or the Second yeah. World War, especially against the Axis and, and uh, Japanese, yeah, Empire. Japanese Empire. So one thing I guess I was wanted to talk a little bit about is what's interesting, again, what's kind of interesting about this is that the, obviously this is the only, until New Who, this is the only classic Who where the Doctor just doesn't have a companion. Right. And we've already said that the episode, the part set in the Matrix, the Doctor doesn't even, he's not even kind of explaining to himself what's going on. He's basically not talking right. to anyone at all. He's just doing, mm-hmm. which is, you know, apparently something that Tom Baker had been on about for a while. You know, the Doctor didn't need a companion and he could hold the show of his, on his own, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of gave it to him, i.e., you know, he got a four-part serial where he was the only hero and right. he aced it, basically, and it's a top five classic, but they never did it again. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, actually, because, I mean, he does a really good job. It's absolutely 100% clear that Tom Baker is really trying, really enjoying himself, doing a superb job acting the hero, but that never happens again. 
the tone of the show changed with Hinchcliffe and Holmes leaving, uh, Williams taking over, the mandate from the higher-ups make it more comedic. It's harder to do comedy, I think, on your own. And I think the whole direction changed. It might have happened again if Hinchcliffe and Holmes had continued. So you think there could be more solo Doctor stories if Holmes and Hinchcliffe had continued? I think they might have considered it, although this wasn't successful at the time. That's true. As you mentioned, the fans hated it, whether it be the subject matter or the solo nature of it. It certainly was paradigm-busting with having the Doctor be on his own. The closest you could say that he had a companion would be with Castle and Spandrel and Coordinator Engen to a lesser degree. And even then, that's kind of dubious. So it maybe didn't resonate with the older, more vocal fans of 1976. You know, the Doctor Who Appreciation Society type fans. You were what, 10 years old at the time, so you weren't in in those circles. Nah, nah, and I wouldn't have understood what they were complaining about, to be honest. Actually, I mean, thinking about what we were talking about last week, and, you know, how some fans to this day are upset that Sarah Jane stopped becoming an investigative reporter, this would have been perfect for her. She could have teamed up with with Castellan Spandrel and solved a crime. There you go. (laughs) If If they'd kept her on, the Doctor could have been faffing around in the Matrix, trying to kill trying to kill his mysterious opponent, where Sarah Jane could have been solving crimes. Investigative reporter on Gallifrey. Exactly, yeah. Uprooting <laughs> the the corruption of, of, the, of the Time Lords. And she could have stayed. She could have stayed. She could have become a Time Lady. She would have been the only woman on Gallifrey. The only woman on Gallifrey. <laughs> um, um, she could have joined What's-Her-Face in air traffic control. Uh, Roden. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, we'll become the voice of a computer. Helen Blatch. <laughs> oh, is that Helen Blatch? Okay. Yeah. 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 The other thing we were talking about with the action, I think the show, if you're looking at it from like Seeds of Doom, Mask of Mandragora or Mandragora to Deadly Assassin, Tom Baker has become more and more of the action hero. And he's getting, he's mixing it up. He's getting into it. While he's not doing any of the stunts with horses in Mandragora, he is doing all his quarry work. If they have a stunt double, if Terry Walsh is in there, Maloney did a much better job than in, in previous things with wig and costuming because it right. certainly looks like Tom throughout to me. I t- was trying to pay close attention to that, and it seemed like it was Baker doing predominantly everything. Action hero, exactly. Just to go back to your previous point about my friend and I playing Doctor versus Goth, yeah, the amount of time that we tried to reproduce the breathing underwater by using a reed trick <laughs> and probably nearly drowned ourselves you know we, we we weren't drowning each other because of the climactic fight at the end of episode three we were drowning each other by, <laughs> by trying to breathe underwater using a piece of grass that we had plucked from beside the pond um yeah you know it's ve- he's very resourceful very resourceful and i said you know it's a real repeating myself now but you know it's a real kind of slugfest between those two characters and yeah and tom tom baker is just giving his all basically mm-hmm. from the get-go it lets tom stand out as someone who's really different from what he's been when he was with harry and sarah and then just sarah 
He's very much the man of action, but in a number six Patrick McGowan type way yeah. than yeah. a James Bond, uh, John Pertwee type way. Yeah. He's more resourceful, stand on his own two feet, uh, yeah. not relying heavily on contraptions yeah. or Aikido or or training. Yeah, he's getting he gets muddy, he gets dirty. You know, it's a it's it's a punishing. He's put through a punishing series of challenges. And yes, you're quite right. He overcomes those by just being smarter than his opponent, not by having a gadget, Mm -hmm. not by being not shooting his cuffs and being elegant, not by peeling off his wetsuit to reveal a tuxedo. He does it by basically outsmarting someone in the jungle. So, yeah, I think I think it's it's a lot more. I I hadn't Mm. thought about the prisoner, but yeah, it's a lot more like the prisoner than anything else. And it has the kind of weird grittiness that the prisoner has, mainly because of Patrick McGowan's kind of amazing performance that it's it's right. It has a a kind of a high fantasy to it, the prisoner. But it also has this kind of down to earthness, which is an interesting contrast to, you know, Port Merion and, you know, big balls floating down the beach and number one in a magic etc 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 yeah yeah it's very prisoner like that's an mm-hmm. excellent comparison i think yeah because we have the whole elements of the fantasy yeah. or the fantastic in the matrix combined with like you say gritty harsh reality of the jungle and the quarry yeah yeah and as i said you know it's it's they're dirty they're muddy they they i mean the doctor doesn't have his doctory accoutrements he hasn't doesn't have a hat he doesn't have a big long scarf um, he's not offering people jelly babies. No Sonic, no coat. No Sonic, no, no coat. He, I mean, he has a puffy shirt, like in Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's all he's got, basically. You know, he doesn't have any of the doctory things that the Doctor is supposed to have. It, it was. It's almost as if they were going for some kind of crazy reboot that sort of didn't take, or for whatever reason, just kind of didn't happen. It's a one-off. I think yeah. this is Hinchcliffe and Holmes uh, saying, yeah, okay, we know you, we hear you, Tom. We're not going to do a companionless story, you know. All the time. We're not going to change Doctor Who, right. but much like uh, Planet of the Spiders, our leading man is leaving. We're kind of indulgent of him and his gadget love and his vehicle love. We're going to respect our star and we're going to write him a Doctor Solo story and see how it goes. And, you know, if Hinchcliffe and Holmes had stuck around, it might have repeated itself. But with the sea change of the show, the tone of the show and the production of the show, it wasn't going to ever happen again. Yeah, I mean, I think it would always would have been hard to find an excuse to get rid of the Mm -hmm. companion for one story and then find another one. And it would be equally weird to, you know, every time a companion changes over to have like a a solo Doctor story. But if you look at Heaven Sent, I mean, you know, that's basically the deadly assassin. Um, in some ways, yeah. Yeah, you know, the Doctor's on his own. He's in a mysterious, otherworldly mm-hmm. place. And he has to solve the puzzle and get right. out of there. I mean, it's, I would argue that it's a slightly more tedious puzzle, both for the character and also for the viewer. But it's a puzzle nonetheless. And it's a solo Doctor, you know, who's put through the ringer in order to... I guess in you know in in modern who terms to become a better person and to become the hybrid or I don't know whatever 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 all that shows about at that point and again I think what's you know wonderful about classic who is there's no 
The Doctor is being put through the ringer for our entertainment. Um, it's not to develop his character. Not to develop <laughs> his character at all. It's for the entertainment of the viewer, and it is to give the, the lead actor something that he's always wanted to do, which is be on his own. Yeah, I wonder if RTD, uh, if Davis had this idea for the Doctor Light story, not so much for uh, budgetary reasons, but to extend out the, I believe it was to extend out the season more. You do a Doctor Light and you do a Companion Light, and that kind of gives both your leads a break of one story, and you fashion an extra story out of that season that way. And you could see it happening in the classic era if you took like a four-parter and you do the first two parts or one and three companion-focused and two and four doctor-focused. Yeah, yeah. It, it'd be like the black and white era where the lead would take the week off. Which is, I mean, I think, I think it's true. You know, if you have a, an actor who is the main character in the show, it's very wearing. Um, right. Uh, I think in some ways, because it's a pandemic and I'm spending a lot of time on my own, I'm doing a rewatch of The Sopranos, which is a show I rate very, very highly. And what, again, you know, what one reads about that show um, and actually what one sees on the screen as well is that they were always trying, desperately trying to find ways, certainly in the later seasons of The Sopranos, to find ways to have to give James Gandolfini time off um, mm -hmm. because he basically the show is about him and the character he's playing is such a nightmare that the actor became increasingly uncomfortable with actually having to portray this person each. I'm using weak metaphorically. Um, mm -hmm. So I think you know it, it is it is actually important that that you give you give people who are basically uh, the show is about them you you give them a little bit of time off or alternatively if you've got someone who's you know slightly a manic depressive workaholic <laughs> uh, and a, a lot of other kinds of holics as well like um, like Tom sort of was okay okay Tom we're going to give you what you've always been nagging us about for for such a long time it's your show you're the main person. This is you now, and you can do. You can have an entire episode where you don't really say anything, but you just act all the way through. Right. Um, right. And it's it said it's sort of clear that that was that in some ways kind of really refreshed him. Um, it did, yeah. And and actually, <laughs> and he took it out on poor Louise. And then he took it out episode. on poor Louise James. And like, who who the hell are you? I was getting along just fine on my own, and then right. you turn up, and we have to spend the next week, a couple of weeks, pretending we're. You know, we're in a lighthouse and um, right. we're on robots alien... of death. And yeah, exactly. Zoanan and yeah. Wang Chang and all this stuff. All and... this nonsense. When, when yeah. I could be on my own in a jungle <laughs> shooting blow darts, improvised blow darts, shooting blow darts at each other. That's the other thing that we, 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 the, did you again, do blow darts? Like the number of, well, because there were thorn, there are thorn bushes all over the place. So we, we get thorns and then we'd use the same kind of hollow reeds that we were imagining we'd be able to breathe through when we were underwater <laughs> and we'd make um the blow darts worked worked, worked out pretty well mm -hmm. actually no one lost an eye fortunately no one lost an eye no <laughs> one lost an eye no one lost an eye so yeah. the final part part four uh the doctor escapes the matrix the master escapes uh, arrest by shooting himself up with heroin um, yeah exactly it's grim it's grim <laughs> stuff uh, what do you make of that final scene with the Eye of Harmony and trying to destroy Gallifrey and stuff? It's almost like it's too much. We've already we've already had the story, and now we have this epilogue come along where the Master is still alive, of course, and he's trying to destroy Gallifrey. You know, I think ordinarily one might say that, like, as 
as we pointed out, talking about the hand of fear, you know, or as some people like to say, though I don't agree, about the Pyramids of Mars. You know, the fourth episode's the hard one, and usually Doctor Who kind of fails on the fourth episode, and, you know, it's all kind of wrapped up. I think, A, I think that's an unfair criticism, because if you look at any kind of, you know, genre, sci-fi, action piece of work, wrapping it up is really, really difficult and very seldom works right. I mean, I just watched the new Star Wars movie on an aeroplane and that, like, it just kind of, there's just a bunch of explosions at the end and then everyone goes home, <laughs> um, which is exactly what happens here. You know, there's just a bunch of explosions and everyone goes home in the end. However, it is so chaotic. And, and I, I mean, I hesitate even to credit Peter Pratt as an actor. I mean, it's he, it, he's not, it's a monster. You know, he's not really, it's the master. It's so demonic and horrific and the wobbly camera and the smoke and dry ice and things falling from the ceiling it's it kind of works for me by be just being so insane mm -hmm. i think this is where barusa really shines in it uh, this is probably what pushed people over the edge with gallifrey when he's trying to retroactively make goth into the hero where he's saying if heroes don't exist we must invent them it's good for morale and perfect it's perfect and, you know mackie just steals the scene effectively and the way maloney directs it even uh baker is not in frame for much of it it's between him and engen and spandrel and even though tom's in the background the action has now shifted back to Gallifreyan politics. And you could say this is the corporation's politics. It's media manipulation. It's image manipulation. It's very contemporary. And it's uh, something we're still dealing with today in the 21st century, two decades in. It's super cynical. I mean, it really gets, you know, again, it stops being kind of academic satire and stops being kind of BBC satire and becomes, you know, political satire. Right. Maybe even satire of the police force round up the usual suspects style you know if we've 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 you know we need to manipulate the truth to keep everybody under control mm -hmm. yeah it's great it's yeah. so well done it's so well directed and it's so well acted and it's so well written that you know as i said all the kind of explodey eye of harmony sash of rassilon key of rassilon sticks stick of wrestle on whatever it is um <laughs> rod, of rod of wrestle on that's it the rod of wrestle on <laughs> it's played with such intensity that it works and then the come down after that intensity with you said with mckay is perfect mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and then we ultimately wind up with the master nearly destroying gallifrey uh which he i guess he ultimately manages us to do uh nearly 45 years later that's true. He does. Yeah, you're you're correct. <laughs> Which is uh, a bit sad, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been kind of on the slope of when we introduce Gallifrey at the end of the War Games, and then we have introduced Omega, and then we have Rassilon with the Gallifreyan stories with the Deadly Assassin, and. Are there new things being invented about Gallifrey? I guess the Timeless Children backstory is a new uh, tweak on it, but it seems like we're, it's like with once we introduce Davros, every Dalek story seems to have to ultimately gravitate towards Davros. Once we yeah. introduce Gallifrey and the Time Lords, then the Doctor is no longer this uh, wanderer through time and space. You know, he's a Time Lord and... 
Yeah. He walks through eternity and we lose kind of the flexibility or the openness of the format by filling in the details. And even though Holmes is such brilliant and with the little details, you know, type 40 TARDIS or 305 of them and the Eye of Harmony is in the center of the Panopticon and all those interesting details and the invention of the Matrix which way before the movies, the Wachowski's movies. Yeah. It seems to me it kind of puts constraints on future storytellers. It starts to draw in or box in the show. Yeah, and it seems to me, I, th- I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It also seems to me that, that kind of future writers take what's convenient and boring about Gallifrey and not what's interesting and cool. The Matrix is a really great idea. And I can't speak for where Bob Holmes got the idea from, because I'm sure he didn't come up with it himself, though I'm quite certain that the Wachowski brothers, now sisters, watched The Deadly Assassin, and I'm certain that the movie The Matrix comes from Mm -hmm. The Matrix in Doctor Who. I'd be very surprised if that wasn't the case. But it's such a great story you know it's it's like it's star trek you know when they go into the holodeck you know where you can do whatever you want it's such a great thing and then you know when the matrix comes back it just is it's kind of boring and kind of mundane and it doesn't have Mm -hmm. that kind of dreamlike insanity of this matrix and they've never really done that again and i think moffat tried it with heaven sent Mm -hmm. to create an insane world for the doctor to kind of strive against but you know he didn't use the matrix for that which is, well, you've got the... Why don't you just use the Matrix? And then the Time Lords become... What do they become? They become like... A, a, actually, what they do is they kind of regress to being what they were originally, which are these omnipresent space beings, mm-hmm. rather than this kind of interesting satirical society which Bob Holmes came up right. with. And it seems like... There's a lack of imagination with how we deal with the Time Lords nowadays, mm-hmm. and I, I don't like it. Yeah, and it's it's really only gotten worse each subsequent outing. This is kind of the pinnacle, for me, of Gallifreyan visits, and it's all downhill and continues to be downhill from from here. Yep, we shouldn't have ever really gone back. Your Davros comparison is exactly mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. Uh, as much as one loves Terry Malloy and, you know, all of his work with Big Finish and, and his work as Davros, you know, mm-hmm. during the 80s, Davros should have stopped with the Genesis of the Daleks and we should never have heard of him again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I th- really think in some ways the Time Lord should have stopped with the Deadly Assassin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, of course, will hear about them again, but we should never have really gone back there at such kind of monotonous regularity and had big collars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the big collars seem to have really caught on in 21st Century Who. Even in even in like uh, Arc of Infinity or The Five Doctors, the big collars aren't there. That's true. They're wearing those those were they're wearing that uh, the hat, those hats, aren't they? Um that's true. You are you are, you are correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big collars is more like a new who right. thing. So and fans. Yep, it's the yeah. gravitate onto yeah. them. Yeah. Costumers will uh embrace the most difficult item to costume with that uh fiberglass what, head yeah, frame whatever, or whatever it is shoulder hat. shoulder shoulder, hat shoulder combo hat. thing yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. well any final thoughts um i love the deadly assassin it's a top five okay top 10 at the very least mm-hmm. i mean all of season 14 is, is is pretty much up there for me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. I think this is this is where season fourteen starts to get good for me. Yeah. 
So as uh, Barusa says, nine out of ten. This is a pretty cracking story. It is a cracking story. Cool. Um, so are we going to fast forward through the Lilo years because we've already covered them recently? or we just... Yeah, I think next episode we might do a mad dash through Louise Jameson's time on Doctor Who with pick up with Face of Evil and maybe wrap up with the Invasion of Time. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. That'll be a bit of a challenge for us. It'll be interesting to see how quickly we can get rid of stuff. I mean, really, if we, we concentrate talking about Tom, I think that may that may help. Mm-hmm. Our listener can always go back and revisit our indeed deep our flashback who with uh, Louise Jameson. In, indeed, you can, dear listener. Indeed, you can. All right. Well. Cool. All right. Thank you for listening to episode one sixty six of the Metabulous Two podcast. I have been denying this reality with Ben, and I have been attempting to breathe underwater by using a thin reed. With David. Excellent. Uh, Let's not drown ourselves. (laughs) Yes. Don't try that at home, kids. I did, but I'm still alive. But that doesn't mean that you will survive. I live to tell the tale. But we were built stronger in the 1970s. Kids today. Kids today, huh? Yeah. Ah, Weaklings. All right. Uh, Goodbye. Bye. Bye.